Izaiah 32:7. Lord, we do come to you this morning. I ask that you take these words and bless your people today. Amen. One Sunday morning in the early 1800s, an elderly preacher was rebuked by one of the deacons in his church. Pastor, he said, something must be wrong with your preaching or your work. There's only been one person added to the church in a whole year, and he's just a boy. The minister listened, and his eyes moistening and his thin hand trembling. I feel it too, he replied, but God knows I've tried to do my duty. On that day, the minister's heart was very heavy as he stood before his flock. And as he finished the message, he felt so discouraged he was ready to resign. After everyone had left, that one boy came to him and asked, Do you think if I worked hard for an education, I could become a preacher or perhaps a missionary? Again, tears welled in the minister's eyes. Ah, this heals the ache I feel, he said. Robert, I see a divine hand. May God bless you, my boy. Yes, I think you will become a preacher. Many years later, an aged missionary returned to London from Africa. His name was spoken with reverence. Nobles invited him to their homes. He had added many souls to the Church of Jesus Christ, reaching even some of Africa's most savage chiefs. His name was Robert Moffat, the same Robert who years before had spoken to the pastor that Sunday morning in the old Scottish Kirk. Both of these men were faithful to the call of God to the end of their lives, one whose name we don't even know and one whose name became famous was acclaimed by many. The book of Judges tells us about the leaders God raised up uh, over the next two to three hundred years after the death of Joshua. They came from lots of different tribes and, and mostly ruled over a small portion of the promised land. And this is why you find their, their time of influence actually overlap. There wasn't one continuous rule over the people by the judges. There was one here and one there. Because they were in different areas, uh, their times overlap. Today I'd like to talk about Samuel, who was the last of the judges. Uh, Elkanah was a man of some means and a faithful worshipper of Yahweh. He was part of the tribe of Ephraim and travelled every year to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord. Now, I used to think that Jerusalem was always the place where the temple was, where everybody worshipped. But uh, early on in the Promised Land, for the first about 350 years, the, the tabernacle that Moses had made and had in the wilderness was erected at Shiloh. And that was where the people worshipped. Jerusalem hadn't been captured, hadn't been uh, won over from the uh, original people, the Jebusites, 
and no one had been able to conquer Jerusalem. It was a mountain fortress and it wasn't taken until the time of King David. So Shiloh was the place where Elkanah went every year, about 50 kilometres from his home. I put a little arrow there from where he lived and a little arrow that shows Shiloh it was about 50 kilometre track that they went every year to worship the Lord. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. It seems most likely that Hannah was his first wife and because she wasn't able to have children, he needed a son and heir, so he took another wife. The Bible says when Elkanah sacrificed, he passed helpings from the sacrificial meal around to his wife Peninnah and all her children, but he always gave an especially generous helping for Hannah because he loved her so much and because God had not given her children. But her rival wife taunted her cruelly, rubbing it in and never letting her forget that God had not given her children. This went on year after year. Every time she went to the sanctuary of God, she could expect to be taunted. Hannah was reduced to tears and had no appetite. Her husband, Elkanah, said, Oh, Hannah, why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? Why are you so upset? Aren't I worth more than ten sons? Typical man. <laughs> Thinking that his wonderful presence is all that she needs. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Hannah ate and pulled herself together. Then she slipped away quietly and entered the sanctuary. The priest Eli was on duty at the entrance to God's temple in his customary seat. Crushed in soul, Hannah prayed to God and cried and cried inconsolably. Then she made a vow. O oh God of angel armies, if you take a good hard look at my pain, if you'll quit neglecting me and go into action for me by giving me a son, I'll give him completely, unreservedly to you. I'll set him apart for a life of holy discipline. She actually promised that he would have be a Nazarite, like Samson was, never having his hair cut, never drinking alcohol. Eli told her, go in peace and may the God of Israel give you what you have asked of him. She replied, think well of me and pray for me. Then she ate heartily and her face was radiant. Up before dawn they worshipped God and returned home to Ramah. The Puritans exhorted one another to pray until you pray. Such advice is not to become an excuse for legalism, that's making ourselves feel bad because we missed out on prayer time. But there are, and there are startling examples of very short, rapid prayers in the Bible. But in the Western world, we urgently need this advice. For many of us are praying like little boys who ring the front doorbell and run away before someone comes. <laughs> we just do a quick ask and forget about it. Pray until you pray, meaning pray until you're praying from the heart. Don't be satisfied with distracted prayers. Pray aware of the wonder and audacity of prayer. Pray until you're consciously bringing to God the true concerns 
and fears of your life. Not because this earns us anything with God, but simply because we have a God who loves us and loves to hear from us. And this act of prayer, this turning to God, crying out to Him, is in itself life-changing. Notice that Hannah was comforted after praying. Prayer is not valuable because this is how we get stuff from God. Prayer is valuable in itself because in it we turn to God. God is our greatest treasure. Before the year was out, Hannah had conceived and given birth to a son. She named him Samuel, explaining, I asked God for him. She stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him, possibly between three and five years of age. And she took him up to Shiloh, bringing also the makings of a generous sacrificial meal, a prize bull, flour and wine. The child was so young to be sent off. And I'm sure you've heard the story of Samuel learning to hear from God, how God called him in the night and he ran to Eli and Eli said, that's God talking to you. And uh, Eli's Eli's sons, who were supposed to be priests, were corrupt. But Samuel, though he was only a boy, served the Lord. The boy Samuel grew taller and grew in favour with the Lord and with the people. Samuel wasn't the kind of prophet who did dramatic miracles like uh, Elijah and Elisha. He wasn't the kind of prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah who wrote great long books of messages to all different people. Samuel applied himself to learning what God had called him to do. He was obedient and faithful. He had a pivotal role in Israel's history, but there's only a few stories recorded about his 90 to 100 years of life. And in most of them, he's not even the main character. He's just delivering a message. One of the stories where Samuel saved the day occurred about 20 years after the death of Eli and his sons. For years the Philistines had oppressed the Israelites and made their life very difficult, taking food, taking, you know, they'd grow a crop and the Philistines had come and either destroy it or steal it all. And the Israelites eventually became desperate. It seemed like God had abandoned them. And Samuel said to all the people of Israel, if you want to return to the Lord with all your hearts, get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Ashtoreth, turn your hearts to the Lord and obey him alone, then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal and Ashtoreth and worshipped only the Lord. And Samuel told them, gather all of Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah. And in a great ceremony, drew water from a well and poured it out before the Lord. They also went without food all day and confessed their sins to the Lord. When the Philistine rulers heard that Israel had gathered at Mizpah, they mobilised their army and advanced. I'm assuming that they thought, well, these guys are getting together. They might be kind of rise up against our domination. We better go and squish them again. 
So the Israelites were badly frightened when they learned that the Philistines were approaching. Don't stop pleading with the Lord our God to save us from the Philistines, they packed Samuel. So Samuel took a young lamb and offered it to the Lord as a whole burnt offering. And he pleaded with the Lord to help Israel. And the Lord answered him. Just as Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines arrived to attack. But the Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven that day. And the Philistines were thrown into such confusion that the Israelites were able to defeat them. The Israelite men that were there were able to chase them. And as they were in confusion and attacking each other, what a strange way to lead your people to victory. Getting them to confess their sins, offering sacrifices, praying. And God did the work. There's a story about Samuel that I don't remember ever reading before. I'm sure I have, but it's not one I learned in Sunday school. Samuel was called from birth to serve in the temple. And his role changed as he grew through the different seasons of his life. At this point, Samuel's role changed from simply being a prophet to being a judge or ruler as well. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba, but they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money and they accepted bribes and perverted the course of justice. It sounds a little bit like Samuel was a great leader, a great uh, prophet and a great judge, but not necessarily a great father. <laughs> he was probably away from home a lot. And uh, his sons, it's not necessarily, but we've got to find something that he wasn't perfect at because he gets such a good rap in the Bible. <laughs> Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you're now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. It seems like Samuel might have taken their request as a bit of a personal insult. They didn't want him to be the judge anymore. They wanted a king. But he did the right thing. He prayed about it. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods, and now they're giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask. I solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So Samuel went back to the people and warned them about the cost of having a monarchy. Taxes. Kings and palaces take up a lot of money and a lot of upkeep. The most capable men would be recruited into his army. The loveliest girls would be demanded to come and serve in the king's palace. But they still wanted a king. They wanted to be like all the other nations. So Samuel agreed to their demand. And some time later, he just quietly anointed Saul to be the king in accordance with God's direction. He gave Saul several words of knowledge 
about what would happen to him on the way home. And Saul goes off and all those signs that Samuel told him about come to pass. But Saul didn't tell anybody. He just kept it quiet. He wasn't, at that point in his life, he was uh, pretty timid. But later on, Samuel called the nation together and proclaimed Saul as king. And he took the opportunity to address the people. It's like his uh, farewell speech. Then Samuel addressed all Israel. I have done as you asked and given you a king. Your king is now your leader. I stand here before you, an old grey-haired man, and my sons serve you. I have served as your leader from the time I was a boy to this very day. Now, testify against me in the presence of the Lord and before his anointed one. Whose ox or donkey have I stolen? Have I ever cheated any of you? Have I oppressed you? Have I ever taken a bribe? Tell me and I will make right whatever I've done wrong. No, they replied, you've never cheated or oppressed us. You've never taken even a single bribe. It was the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron, Samuel continued. He brought your ancestors out of the land of Egypt. Now stand here quietly before the Lord as I remind you of all the great things the Lord has done for you and your ancestors. And it goes on with a recitation of all the history of Israel and how God had blessed them. So with the confirmation of a new king, it's time for Samuel to step aside. But before he goes, he has something to say. Samuel begins his retirement speech by confirming his integrity. And it's almost as if Samuel says, So you're absolutely sure I'm a fair judge? Absolutely, they reply. Okay then, says Samuel, hear ye, hear ye. In this ancient statement, God speaks to all of his people, including us, about our propensity for making big changes that don't change anything at all. They wanted a king, but that wasn't going to change anything. Why didn't Israel just call on God when trouble came? For the same reason we often fail to. When the people of God are in trouble, we usually try everything else but simply walking by faith. It was a problem in Israel. They didn't want to walk by faith and trust God alone. And churches sometimes don't want to walk by faith either. Walking by faith requires two unpalatable things. The first is the rigour of a relationship with God. Samuel explains to them that uh, living by faith means maintaining their relationship with God, means confessing sin, resting in his ways, and asking for grace to be what we cannot otherwise be. Second, walking by faith requires living without a backup plan for God. It wasn't that Israel wanted to reject God as their deliverer. They just wanted a contingency plan. Nobody in their right mind would tell God to take a hike. But we would like to have alternatives in case he doesn't deliver or bless us on schedule. Samuel says, now you've got your king, but the covenant still works the same way. It always has. Follow the Lord and life will work. Disobey and rebel against the Lord. King or no king, and life won't work. 
Finally, Samuel uses a zinger of an illustration. He tells the Israelites to stand still and see the power of God. A heavy rain at harvest time is devastating. And in that part of the world, almost unheard of. But God sends a deluge at Samuel's queue that hammers their crops. Israel had to get their fears in the right order. That's what had happened to Israel. They were terrified of their enemies who were opposing them, who can blame them. We too become fear-driven when trouble comes. Fear of failure, fear of losing our livelihood, fear of family, fear of all sorts of things. These fears miniaturise God. We may believe all the right things about God, but he shrinks in our minds. We may say he's all-powerful, but he becomes mini-omnipotent in our heads. The power of what we fear is bigger, louder and more dangerous. On the other hand, as Oswald Chambers wrote, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Samuel concludes his speech. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. And Samuel was a praying man. We, uh, Psalm 99 puts him in with uh, Moses and Aaron as people who called on the Lord and he answered them. You may not think you can do much else, but we can all pray. So Saul reigned for 40 years, and after some time, he was having trouble with the Amalekites. And Samuel brings him a message telling him to totally wipe out the Amalekites, including all their livestock. So Saul goes off with his army and has a victory over the Amalekites, but he and his men keep the best of the herds and the flocks. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I'm sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. Then he went on to Gilgal. When Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. And what is all this bleating of sheep and goats and lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul admitted, uh, It's true the army spared the best of the goats and the cattle and the sheep, but, but they were going to be sacrifices for God. Uh, we've destroyed everything else. And Samuel said to Saul, Stop. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. What did he tell you, Saul said? Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices 
as much as in obeying the Lord. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go and see Saul again. Though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So another story I'm sure you're familiar with is Samuel going to anoint David to be king. How uh, David was just the shepherd boy out in the paddocks and uh, had to be found because none of the other brothers were suitable. And it was a long time from when David was anointed to when he actually became king. Probably seven years uh, before Saul's death that David became king of Judah. During that time he fought Goliath. He uh, spent time hiding in the wilderness because Saul was trying to kill him. And Samuel did uh, welcome David at one stage and gave him sanctuary when Saul was after him. But eventually he did become king. But before he became king and be- before even Saul died, Samuel died, He had faithfully fulfilled his calling. It's a picture of uh, David being anointed king. Samuel was the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. He saw the transition of the Hebrews from a collection of tribes ruled by various judges through to a unified nation ruled by one king. He oversaw the transition from the era of the judges to the era of the kings. He anointed the first two kings of Israel and he had a priestly role as well. Samuel seems to have been a bit of an unassuming sort of guy. He followed the Lord faithfully from childhood. He didn't kick over the traces or fall away in his old age. He was faithful. Samuel's role changed along the way. He served God in the temple. He spent some years with a group of prophets, probably in training, travelling around. He spent time travelling in the country, dealing with the disputes and giving out God's word to those who came for advice. He became an advisor to kings. He was faithful and God gave him bigger challenges. And He kept on growing and allowing God to stretch him, even into his old age. Different stages of life require different things from us and that we move from one stage to another. We can try and do things the way we've always done or we can allow God to stretch us and learn new ways to do things, new ways of thinking, new skills that we need for a new season. God made each of us for different purposes. There's a plan for my life that looks different than the plan for your life and a plan for... uh, other people's lives, they're all different. <coughs> Samuel had a different role from any of the other judges or prophets. God called him and used him in unique ways. You may be a behind the scenes person, your role is just as vital as the up the front people. Samuel just went on doing what God called him to do, delivering messages. One last story to finish with. Clarence Jordan was a man of unusual abilities and commitment. He had two PhDs, one in agriculture, one in Greek and Hebrew. 
So gifted was he, he could have chosen to do anything he wanted. He chose to serve the poor. In the 1940s, he founded a farm in America, Georgia, and called it Cornonia Farm. It was a community for poor whites and poor blacks. As you might guess, such an idea did not go over well in the deep south, USA, in the 40s. Ironically, much of the resistance came from good church people who followed the laws of segregation as much as the other folk in town. The town people tried everything to stop Clarence. They tried boycotting him, slashing workers' tyres when they came to town. Over and over, for 14 years, they tried to stop him. Finally, in 1954, the Ku Klux Klan had enough of Clarence Jordan, so they decided to get rid of him once and for all. They came one night with guns and torches and set fire to every building on Cornonia Farm except Clarence's home, which they riddled with bullets. They chased off all the families except one black family that refused to leave. Clarence recognised the voices of many of the clansmen, and as you might guess, some of them were church people. Another was the local newspaper reporter. The next day, the reporter came out to see what remained of the farm. The rubble was still smouldering and the land was scorched, but he found Clarence in the field, hoeing and planting. I heard the awful news, he called to Clarence. And I came out to do a story on the tragedy of your farm closing. Clarence just kept on hoeing and planting. The reporter kept on prodding, kept poking, trying to get a rise from this quietly determined man who seemed to be planting instead of packing his bags. So finally the reporter said in a haughty voice, Well, Dr Jordan, you got two of them PhDs and you put 14 years into this farm and there's nothing left of it at all. Just how successful do you think you've been? Clarence stopped hoeing, turned toward the reporter with his penetrating blue eyes and said quietly but firmly, about as successful as the cross. Sir, I don't think you understand us. What we are about is not success, but faithfulness. We're saying, good day. Beginning that day, Clarence and his companions rebuilt Cornonia Farm, and the farm is still going strong today. I believe God has called us, all of us, to be a church. This has been a difficult year for Living Word in some ways, but I believe God is challenging us today to be faithful to our calling, and we will, we will see him bring us into a new season. Faithfully seek God, to pray like Hannah, to listen like Samuel, to be faithful like Samuel, to be faithful to our calling, both as individuals and as a church family. The Greeks had a race in their Olympic Games that was unique. The winner was not the runner who finished first, it was the runner who finished with his torch still lit. I want to run all the way with the flame of my torch still lit. Lord, we do thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your opening the way for us. Thank you for your word that encourages us. 
Help us, Lord, to continue to be faithful, to continue running the race, and to follow you to the end. Thank you, Lord. Amen.